The Fanboy, episode 65. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 65th edition of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Yes, uh, uh, you heard correctly. I said the Fanboy, not El Fanboy. Uh, we got a new name. Um, so where, where do I begin with that? So check it out. On February 13th, 2017... I was unceremoniously fired by Latino Review Media, a.k.a. LRM, a.k.a. formerly just LatinoReview.com, for reasons that have still never been made clear to me. But at the time, I was part of a show called the Lost Fanboys Podcast. That was a show that I helped conceive. In fact, I'm the one who came up with that name, the whole Spanglish angle I thought really worked well for a site called Latino Review. You know, never mind that once it got bought out, the corporate owners wanted to scrub any Latinoness out of it, and they just turned it into LRM instead of Latino Review. But still, at the time, we were trying to go for the whole Latin thing. We wanted to try to tap in to Hispanics and in the pop culture zeitgeist at the time, and yada, yada, yada. So, you know, we used to put out that show every Tuesday, and I was fired on a Monday night. And on the very next day, I just wanted to sort of hit the ground running. So I was like, I was like, I don't know. I was, I wanted to thumb my nose at them somehow. And I wanted to be like, okay, you're going to kick me off of my show and off of this site that I've dedicated all of this time and passion and energy into. All right, fine. I can't be on Lost Fanboys. Then I'm going to start L Fanboy. And that very day... At the same usual time when we would drop a Lost Fanboys, I dropped an L Fanboy. And on top of that, I knew that there couldn't be a Lost Fanboys that day because Jammer himself was still reeling from my firing. At the time, he was thinking of quitting. Um, So I knew that there wouldn't be an episode of Lost Fanboys to compete with me. And I knew that there was a whole listenership that was going to be waiting for that show to, to drop. So I said, you know what? I can fill that void perfectly with L Fanboy. And I'll signal that this is my show, singular. No longer loss, now it's L Fanboy. And you know what? That made a lot of sense back then. And it really worked out too. My premiere episode of of this very show, despite the fact that I was no longer affiliated with the site, despite the fact that I had no real base as a solo journalist or solo podcaster, and everything everyone knew about me was from either my time at Latino Review or my brief time at Movie Hole prior to that. Despite all that, that pilot episode got something like between five and 700 downloads. And that's all because I decided to really tap into that space that was left open by Lost Fanboys that week. And, you know, uh, they eventually did relaunch and Jammer got some new co-hosts and that show continued. But L Fanboy was born of that. And what's happened is over the course of the last 64 episodes, the show, you know, that name has become less and less relevant. 
And in fact, it almost, you know, to me, it's almost like a negative thing. It's almost like, you know, I named it sort of cynically. It was all sort of a big sort of FU to LRM and an FU to Lost Fanboys. And honestly, you know, this show, so much has changed since then. You know, I've launched revengeofthefans.com. I've moved on to bigger and better things. My sort of solo quote unquote career is going exceedingly well and it's gotten stranger and stranger to have a show that's basically a response to a show that's hardly relevant anymore. Because really, does anyone listening to Lost Fan Voice, I never hear about it. I don't even know if it's still running. No offense to Jammer, if you're listening to this, I still love you, man. But, uh, you know, Lost Fan Boys is kind of like, as far as I can tell, it's sort of a dead brand at this point. L Fanboy has sort of surpassed it. And with that in mind, I want to put all that behind me. I, I, I want to put away the negativity. I want to put away the whole idea of thumbing my nose at my old boss and trying to get revenge and all that sort of stuff because I'm not about that life anymore. I've moved on. I'm so happy where I am now. And honestly, the name started becoming almost like a bit of an albatross. It started becoming an issue because when you read El Fanboy, it, you know, it's Spanglish and it gives the the, the idea to someone who doesn't listen to the show, who's someone who's just looking for a podcast to listen to, you're going to get the idea that, oh, this must be a Spanish show or it's a show aimed at a Spanish clientele. When in reality, if you know, for those of you who listen, you know that that's not true. You know, I, I my show is for everybody. I have listeners in Greece and China and Africa, Australia, all over the place. And I very rarely really bring in the Spanish element. Yeah, I mention bochinche and I say adios and all that sort of stuff. I mix in little Latin flavor and that's not going to go anywhere. That's just part of who I am. I'm a New Yorker. I'm a, I'm a Hispanic born and raised in New York City. So my heart is still got that Latino, that Latino heat. But, you know, but in actuality, the, the aim of the show, the tone of the show has nothing really to do with Spanglish or Spanish or any of that. And it would become an issue when I would try to book people. You know, when I, I, when I would send emails to publicists and managers about trying to book people for the show, for interviews and whatnot, they would see the name and then I would get back a question like, oh, so is this for the Latin market? And then I'd always have to explain, no, it's not. And, you know, then it would get sort of vague and weird as to why it's even called that. So there you have it, folks. That's why I've decided I want to move away from the L fanboy name. I'm very proud of that name and for everything that we've built together over these last 64 wonderful episodes. But now it is time to sort of start a new page, a new chapter in this saga. It's an, you know, it, and it's going to be the fanboy podcast moving forward. And what I hope this does is I hope it makes it easier for me to book some awesome talent to come on the show. Because in my heart of hearts, what I would love to see this show become is almost like the uh, the WTF podcast of geekdom. Because I don't know if you know, for those of you who listen to Mark Marin or for those of you who don't listen to Mark Marin's show, you know, what he kind of does is similar to what I do. It's very sort of, you know, personal and open and confessional 
and it's about what's going on in his mind and his heart at the time. But it's also about he, you know, he books these interesting guests and they have these long form, like hour long conversations about, you know, with actors and writers and directors and musicians and everything where they talk about, you know, what their inspirations are, what their life has been like, how they got into the business, how they came up with certain ideas. You know, it's very revealing. It's very awesome. That's why I listen to WTF. You know, I always feel like I walk out of that knowing a great deal more about the people that I was interested in than I did before. It's just, you know, it's, it's, I, I really like that about that show. And I feel like there's not necessarily something like that for us geeks and fanboys out there. So what I want to be able to start doing now is bring the creators that you love and respect most onto this show. And I sort of began that a little bit late last year when I got Mark Miller on the show and we spoke about what he's working on with Netflix. We spoke about his old uh, Superman quote unquote pitch that he was working on with Mark Miller back in 2008 and what they wanted to present to Warner Brothers at the time. And we overall just had a great conversation. And I was very fortunate that Mark was, you know, didn't really mind the name and he didn't ask too many questions and he just wanted to come on and talk about what he's working on. And I want to be able to do stuff like that more often now. And I think the new name will, will help with that. I, I want to be able to bring on people like Brian Bendis or, I don't know, David Goyer or whoever. You know, I, I want to be able to start reaching out towards people. You know, I guess a, a part of me doesn't want to get too ambitious and be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have Chris Evans on next week. You know, I'm thinking about I probably have to work my way up to the real top tier, unbelievable talent. But the point is, I'm in this for the long haul. And I ain't going anywhere. So even if it, if I, if it means that for episode 150, I'm sitting down and interviewing Gal Gadot about Wonder Woman 4, you know, uh, I want to be able to say I'm doing that one day. I want to have Henry Cavill on this show one day. I want to see this thing expand. And it doesn't mean that I'm going to try to guess, get a guest for every episode. You know, I, I still very much like being able to deliver my takes on the news and scoops and insights and stuff that's going on in the week, in the world of pop culture and geekdom and, and, and fanboyism on a particular week. And I can't do that if I'm going to have a long ass interview on every episode. So it might be something where like once a month, you know, every fourth episode at the end of each month, I'm going to bring on somebody cool for you to listen to, to an insightful conversation with them. Um, so yeah, there you go. That's sort of, you know, where, where I want to sort of pivot the show moving forward. It's still going to basically be the same show, but I really want to start upping the ante in terms of guests, in terms of having interesting, meaningful conversations about the things that matter most to us. Cause really, wouldn't you love to sort of dive in and, and, and dig into the minds of some of the people creating these things that you love so much? and be able to send me questions to ask them and all that sort of stuff. Like to me, that's very exciting. And to me, that's, that, that's an exciting sort of end game to go towards. And I got to tell you, it's really sort of like inspiring and, and promising to me that even with that name, with the L fanboy name, which sends a sort of mixed signal to anyone who doesn't already know what the show is, the fact that the show has still done so well, do you guys know? That for the last week, ever since episode 64, which dealt with some you know, rumors in Bochinche and the world of DC that I shared with you, ever since then, this has been the top show on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is search for the name 
Fanboy. Just search Fanboy. And all of the different Fanboy podcasts will come up. You know, some of them have Fanboy in the title. Some of them, that's just the genre that they're listed under. The top hit is now the Fanboy podcast. Or it might still say L Fanboy if you look. You know, they're, they're still updating the listing. But the point is, even with that mixed title, uh, even, you know, the sort of misleading title, this show is dominating the fanboy podcast charts and that's all thanks to you that's all thanks to you listening that's thanks to you leaving me all i still have a perfect five star rating and if you can please keep those coming in that's only going to help the show grow and make it even easier for me to book some amazing people for you guys to to listen to um so i want to just i want to thank you for that you, you you guys have made all of this possible and I hope you'll continue to support and listen as the show continues to evolve into its sort of next direction. And it, it's kind of funny to think about how much things have changed. Because that first episode, uh, if you go back and listen to it, it's, uh, it's you know, it, it, it's a different animal. Because I didn't know what I was doing at the time. I didn't even know if I was going to continue the show past an episode or two. I just knew I was pissed about getting fired the night before. And I wanted to have a show for you guys to hear me sort of vent what had happened and what I would like to do, maybe. And I was going to take it like show by show. And I pretty much, I've barely missed a week since then. Uh, because the response has been great and I've had such wonderful, supportive, loyal listeners and supporters ever since. But it's been interesting to hear, to, kind of, to see how the show has evolved little by little. And I'm very excited about the future. I hope you are too. But okay, uh, enough talking about the name change. Let's talk about what's going on in the world of geekdom. Let's talk about what's going on with me in terms of what I've been watching and what I've been reporting on and what I've been taking in. Um, I want to open real quick about uh, with some thoughts on Justice League, believe it or not. I know it's, it's weird to be talking about Justice League at the end of June of 2018 when the movie is already, you know, it's, it's come and gone and faded out of people's psyches by now. But last night, I introduced my family to it. I watched it for the third time ever, and I shared my thoughts on the Twitter, or at least I, I shared what my wife thought and what my kids thought of it. And now I kind of want to just share sort of what I got out of it on this third viewing. You know, the first two I saw in theaters, and the trajectory was as follows. The first time I saw it, I thought it was better than it had any right to be. But it was still ultimately sort of, you know, a mess. You know, but in general, it was an entertaining mess. The second time I saw it, I actually liked it much more. You know, I wouldn't go so far as to say, like, oh, that's a really good movie. But I, I, I was very entertained that I remember saying, like, oh, man, it's just a shame about the effects. But, you know, th this could have been pretty darn good. That's how I felt at the time. Uh, this time, I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. I liked it less than the second viewing, I guess a little more than the first, but now, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, with, a, with the benefit of some perspective to see, you know, now I don't have to, you know, with, with, with all of any kind of internal hype I had completely died down now, just watching it now, separate of anything, was, uh, you know, the, the flaws really do jump out at me. And, you know, that, I mean, that Steppenwolf plot is, is just total vague nonsense. And, you know, of, of all the issues with that film, 
that's one that I don't think gets enough credit <laughs> because, you know, Steppenwolf's plot is so like meaningless and, and dubious and you don't really know what he's doing or why he's doing it because, you know, initially this was all supposed to be building towards the arrival of Darkseid and they completely backpedaled on that. So really what he's there to do is just like generic bad guy 101. And to me, that's just like, ugh, that really brings everything down. Um, and, and in general, I cannot believe that we got a movie that looked that bad. You know, in terms of the effects, in terms of Steppenwolf's design, in terms of Henry Cavill's upper lip, in terms of all that, you know, like I can't believe we got a movie that looked that muddy and cruddy and cheap as the first ever Justice League movie and that anyone at Warner Brothers looked at that, signed off on it and said, yes, this is ready to go into theaters. I, I'm still sort of outraged by that. Um, how it came to that and the folks who made those decisions. I mean, all I can really say is, fuck you. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, I do have some, you know, a couple of interesting things on the positive side to share. Um, you know, I found myself very emotional about a scene that I only had thought was cool the first two times. And it got me thinking about what these movies can and should be. Because look, you know, people come to these kinds of movies with different expectations, wanting different things. Sometimes all they want is, you know, bubblegum, you know, popcorn sort of fluff. Some of them are looking for like something that, that brings their comic book dreams to life into live action. You know, people have different things that they want from these movies. For me, What's always sort of appealed to me about superhero movies and the comic book genre as a whole is the idea of heroism. Seeing people be saved by these wonderful heroes. You know, because we, we live in a world right now, you know, depending on, no matter what end of the political spectrum you're on, no matter what's going on, we live in an increasingly hostile world. And our worldview is starting to get very clouded with like whoever's on the other side of this team is a bad guy. And there's bad people out there trying to do bad things to innocent people. And, I, and that's true on both sides. On both sides of, 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 of all of the different things going on in the world, there is, you know, you look at someone else as the enemy and there's almost like a powerlessness to that. And when you consider the fact that we feel, we often feel powerless and like so much happens and we have no say or control over it and we're just doomed to be victimized by it. What's beautiful about a good superhero movie is that for at least a couple of hours, we imagine that someone could save us. And that has always sort of spoken to me, going back to, to being, you know, feeling like a very sort of vulnerable, powerless three and four year old boy when I first saw Superman four, you know, I was going through all kinds of stuff at home. You know, my, 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 my family was falling apart. My parents were on the verge of a divorce. There was fighting, there was negativity, there was horrible things said and horrible things done. And I felt like I couldn't fix it. I tried my best to make mommy and daddy laugh and make mommy and daddy get along. And I, I, I remember this instance where they're having this 
this huge argument in the kitchen at our at our old apartment in Elmhurst, Queens. And I grabbed my tricycle and I'm like three years old and I like rode it into the kitchen and it stopped them from yelling at each other because they saw their son there and I was just trying to break the tension. And I'm just, I'm reminded of all that because in all of us, like, I feel like we all want to try to break the tension. We all want to try to make all of the hatred stop, but you don't know how. And that's why when you see these movies or watch these cartoons or you read the comic books, there's something very sort of inspirational and uplifting about a hero can just come in and save the day and we can have a happy ending. Because in real life, we don't often get that. And in Justice League yesterday, while watching... um, the scene, I don't even know what that's supposed to be. Is it a courthouse? Is it a bank? I don't know. But the the, the big Wonder Woman scene at the start of the movie, uh, when she comes in and she grabs the bomb and she throws it up into the air and it explodes and everyone is saved, right? Um, right after that, what happens inside is that the bad guy grabs an assault rifle and aims it at a bunch of little kids and he starts shooting. And this time around, maybe because yesterday there was that shooting at the Baltimore Gazette or whatever it's called, the Capitol Gazette, I'm not sure. But, you know, in this age we're living in now with all of these scumbags and their assault rifles murdering innocent people for their own agendas. It really hit close to home when she landed in front of the gunfire and she protected all those kids from that coward and his gun. Because I wish, I wish we had heroes who could do that in real life, but we don't. But that scene, that moment, and the way it made me feel, the way it's making me feel right now, like that reminds me of what makes these movies important. That's why these movies matter. And that's why they shouldn't be played just for laughs. And it shouldn't just be one gag after another and slapstick and penis jokes. And, and, you know, I I just, these movies have to take that that responsibility important because people need heroes right now. And in the movie, they reference the age of heroes. That back in the day, everyone got together. The tribes of man all got together to stop these evildoers. And, you know, there's some depth in that script. There's some stuff that was put in there, whether it's by Terrio or by Snyder or in Joss Whedon's rewrites. But there's effort put into this idea of right now we've become so splintered as a world, as humanity, as a society, that we can't just get together and and bring down the evildoers anymore because everyone looks at each other as the evildoers. It's so sad. That the powers at the top of the machine have succeeded in breaking us apart. And one of the messages of the movie is that the only way that we can really do this is if we come together. It's about uniting. It's about bringing the team together at a time when it just seems like it's so hard to get people together for a common good.
you know, because the, <laughs> the definition of what a common good even is anymore seems to have been completely changed and distorted and evolved into something that it's hard to even recognize anymore if we can universally find what a true common good even is. But I digress. Um, you know, look, Joss Whedon did a bunch of things that didn't work. You know, obviously, some of it's very well known. But, you know, my main thing is like the, the, what I hated that he added was there were way too many one liners, way too many, way, way too many little zingers, little little things there that was just like, oh, my God. All right. We get it. We you want us to laugh a little bit here. But could you find a more organic way than just these generic one liners? But beyond that, you know, he he added some things to this that I do think were important that I do think get lost in all of the discussion about the movie because, you know, people were so distracted by the bad effects and by the, you know, the, by the fact that the production itself felt a little rushed and hastily thrown together there towards the end. I'm telling you right now that if the effects were amazing, if Steppenwolf looked cooler and more photorealistic, if Cavill's upper lip didn't look so bizarre and his face in general look weird in certain key scenes, that movie would, you know, it, it wouldn't be an instant classic by any stretch, but it would be regarded much, you know, there would be a much fonder uh, buzz or glow around the film if they would have just delayed it six months to make it look much better. But the stuff that gets lost because they didn't do that, the stuff that gets lost because everyone was distracted by how shitty the movie looked is like he, he you could tell he went out of his way to infuse the human element, which is something that certain critics, myself included, have felt like was missing from the Zack Snyder films. And they, they, listen, you know, if you're a Zack Snyder fan, this is not, you know, I'm not against you. I'm not against him. It's just, you know, it, it's about different priorities. And, and some of like what, what I go to a movie to see, like, you know, a movie like this to see, uh, the human element's very important. Because if all we're getting caught up on you know, are, are caught up in are, are are the demigods beating the hell out of each other, or really you know iconic images of cool superheroes doing cool superhero things. You know we're kind of losing the fact that there are humans in this story. This is this is supposed to be about the people of Earth and how we react to having these saviors and these horrible villains going toe to toe, and what's at stake for us. And there's little subtle things in there that I found very interesting. And, I, and I'm really glad that he brought those to the proceedings. Like, you know, like we know that in the early going, that, that, that credit sequence with the, uh, the Muslim family being attacked by the skinheads and all that sort of stuff, you know, that was added by Whedon. And that was, you know, he, he was trying to make a comment there about the society that we're currently living in right now, where... You know, racism in general is, is, is becoming a big ordeal now internationally with this tribe mentality of us versus them. And, you know, he, he was trying to make a comment there about how toxic things currently are. Of course, in the, in the, in the movie itself, it's because Superman's no longer there to save the day. But you can clearly see there's an allegory there where the, the film is trying to comment on how nasty things are getting and the way we treat each other down on the streets. And the other one, and this is one that I feel like a lot of people miss. A lot of people love to crap all over 
that Russian family that he added to the movie. Oh, why is it in there? They, they don't add anything. What is the point of the Russian family? The thing is that the Russian family actually does add, if you're not looking at it with your arms crossed, ready to shit all over it, they do add an important element to the story. Because, look, we know that the third act of that film didn't get changed all that much in terms of its setting, in terms of who fights who and where they do it, right? So that means that in the original version, since the Russian family was completely a Whedon invention, and we know that now, that must mean that in the original version, that Russian town had nobody in it. It didn't have people. We know it's basically just a bunch of empty warehouses. There's nobody around. And Whedon added them into there so that when the big bad guy, when the big heroes are beating the hell out of each other and everything's going on, we have some people to cling to who we can feel their fear. We can feel their vulnerability. We can feel that there's something real at stake, that this final battle is not just about a bunch of CG people throwing their powers at each other. You need to have a human element. And that's why the Russian family's there. And if you pay attention to the Russian family, you know, it, it, the, the, there, there's poetry in there too. There's little subtle things that you may be rolling your eyes that I might, that, that, that I would even say that, but you got to open up your heart to it because there is some interesting stuff in there. Like there's a great little scene there in, in, in the middle of the film where the mother and the father are freaking out. The mother is worried about, you know, what if they get to us? How are we going to get food? You know, she's there. She's worrying about protecting, you know, taking care of her kids and her family. And the husband is there trying to protect them. He's, you know, he's barricading the doors and he's trying to reassure the mother. But you could tell that they're scared. And remember, the parademons feed off of fear. And that's the subplot of the scene, that within this house, fear is starting to raise. And that's why there's more and more parademons sort of swarming the area and things are getting worse. But guess what? There's someone in that house who's not afraid. And by the sheer fact that she's not afraid, she might be indirectly saving her family. And that's the little girl. There's this great little moment, which again, if you don't look for the depth, you're not going to see it. But if you do keep your eyes open, it's in there. She grabs this can of bug spray and she doesn't do it out of fear. She does it out of, I'm going to get these motherfuckers. I mean, she's not thinking that, but the, the, you could tell that he shot it deliberately because she doesn't look scared at all. She looks down at the can and then she looks up at the roof and there's not a hint of fear on this tough little girl's face because all she's looking for is a way to kill these things. She's not scared. She's ready to confront them. Granted, she's not going to win. She's got a can of bug spray. But the, the message of it is this little girl, her bravery is probably helping the, the family right now because everyone else is freaking out. And I think that's a great little, it's a little subtle thing that people miss and that no one really talks about because there's so many other things to talk about with Justice League. But in reality, having the human family there and then having that great moment in the middle of the battle in the third act where Superman stops dead in his tracks because he hears voices and he goes, civilians. And he races off to go help and then Flash saves the Russian family and Superman gets that whole building of people. Like that stuff is beautiful. And you can't have that moment or that moment would not have landed nearly as well if we hadn't already met this family throughout the movie. 
So listen, I, I don't want to. I I feel like I've spoken about this movie much longer than I should have, considering it's like a nine-month-old movie at this point, or an eight-month-old movie, and we're all sort of over it. But you know, I watched it last night, and I, I I saw some new insights in there, and it just made me even more frustrated once again that this thing was not delayed because I feel like this could have been a pretty damn good movie. It really could have been. And it's just a shame that with the crappy effects and everything that happened, it all completely overshadowed what this film could and should have been for the masses. But I appreciate the good things that Whedon brought into it. I appreciate what Snyder brought to the proceedings. I appreciate what, what, what the collective of creative talent did to get this movie into theaters and into any kind of remotely watchable shape. Because I think that's one of the minor miracles in all of this is that it's amazing with everything that went on with Snyder versus Johns and Johns versus Snyder and then Whedon versus Johns and Snyder. I mean, it's not all versus. It's not quite that hostile. But with all of the different things, with the two different sets of rewrites, with all of the chaos going on with behind the scenes, it's a miracle that that movie was not a complete and utter dumpster fire. The fact that it's remotely watchable, the fact that my seven-year-old daughter loved it, the fact that, you know, it's, it's at least pretty good or at least okay is a miracle. So that's something else that I just kind of wanted to hit on, even if overall I do think the movie, you know, is, is uh, no, you know, not as good as I thought the second time. It's definitely a very flawed film. And I just wish, I wish, wish, wish they would have delayed it. But all right, uh, I'm going to switch up gears now just a little tad. Uh, I was sent a, a suggestion, a suggested topic by Aaron Verola, which, by the way, if you haven't checked out his uh, The Fanboy Garage, him and Chris Lasanti have an awesome podcast called The Fanboy Garage. It's part of the Revenge of the Fans podcast network. It releases every Thursday, and they just started the first of a three-part DC trilogy of episodes. So you should check out episode seven. It's all about Superman, and uh, I can't wait to see what the next one's going to be. But um, yeah, he sent in a suggestion. You know, he he wanted me to talk a little bit about what's going on with Sony, uh, with all of this Spider-Man stuff going on, and Morbius, and Venom, and Silver, and Black, and you know what the hell is going on? And then after that, uh, we're gonna talk a little DC. You know, we have some movement on the Batman that I want to comment on. I also want to talk a little bit about the DC universe. And uh, we'll see what else I'm inspired to talk about. But for right now, let's talk a little SDCC, shall we? Because it looks like Sony is really going for it. They're, they are going to make a big Spider-Man panel. And we reported about it today on RevengeOfTheFans.com in an article written by Jonathan Brady. By, by the way, Jonathan is doing an amazing job so far. He's been part of the site now for, I want to say, like three weeks and his contributions have been like wonderful. He's reliable. He's a strong writer, and I'm I'm I feel so blessed to have him on the team. Um, so just I wanted to just kind of mention that Jonathan, thanks for everything you've contributed so far. You know you've become a major cog in the wheel of Revenge of the Field, uh, Revenge of the Fields, Revenge of the Fans.com. So Jonathan, I know you listen. Thank you very much for what you're doing. I'm loving it, and I couldn't appreciate it any more than I currently do. But he wrote up a story. 
that, that basically brings up the fact that the Spider-Verse is, you know, Sony's prepping for a very Spidey Comic-Con. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, if you think about it, you know, Marvel Studios is not going to be there. So this is their chance to sort of shine a spotlight on what they're working on. And it looks like you know, they've got plenty to talk about. You know, there's there's the announcement of uh, a Spider-Man Far From Home, which is a Sony co-production. So they, you know, there might be some stuff to talk about there. They've also got Spider-Man Into the Spideyverse arriving later this year, and before that, they've got Venom coming out. You know, there's a lot going on over there. And by the way, I've spoken to some folks who've who've seen Into the Spider-Verse because yes, even though it doesn't come out until December. They're already doing test screenings, and the buzz is incredibly positive. A lot of people are telling me that this is going to be everyone's favorite Spider-Man movie uh, going forward. <laughs> and even beyond that, it looks like Sony and Lord and Miller, who produced it, um, are really like pulling out all the stops. Like There are some surprises in the voice cast that people are gonna lose their minds about. And I wonder if they're gonna bring some of those to light at the Comic-Con panel, because there's a lot of stuff that hasn't been made publicly well-known yet. I I've read some of the names and I'm like, how did they keep that a secret? <laughs> so, you know, th th they're putting a lot of effort into their Spider-Verse. And, you know, the, the big question is like, why? You know, everyone kind of thought that Sony was done. Everyone assumed that when Sony made the deal with Marvel Studios to basically have joint custody of Spider-Man, that that was their way of, of, you know, sort of throwing in the towel. But now I'm starting to think that that's not the case at all. I think we, the fan community and even the blogging community, you know, we completely misdiagnosed what was going on when Sony struck that deal. You know, it's, they weren't waving the white flag. You know, they, they weren't asking Marvel for help because the wheels had come off. You know, that's not what happened. I think the real reason, now it's, you know, it's starting to become fairly clear, is, is, is it, was, it was all like a business savvy move. What if they knew they wanted to build up this Spider-Verse, because we've known for years that they wanted to make Sinister Six and, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 3 and 4 and maybe a Spider-Girl and all this other stuff. They had all these plans for what where they wanted to go and a Venom movie and all this stuff. But they knew that in today's pop culture landscape, you can't really do that in a vacuum anymore. People love the shared universes. Shared universes are all the rage. And it's, it's also common knowledge that Marvel fans have been dying for Spider-Man to come back home to Marvel for years. They want to see him in the Avengers movies. They want to, you know, the, the, Sony had its ear to the ground and knew there was a huge appetite to have Spider-Man you know, interact with his Marvel cohorts. And I think they saw this whole thing really as a business opportunity. They, they seem to have thought to themselves, what if we relaunch Spidey within the MCU, then use all of that goodwill the MCU has generated with audiences and critics as a launch pad for our Spider-Verse? I think that's really what happened. Because you know, they didn't scrap their plans to expand the Spider-Verse as we had all initially thought. But rather, it looks like they decided to leech. This is kind of cynical, but it looks like they decided to leech off of the MCU. I know it seems sort of like cynical and sort of sneaky of, that, of them. But when you look at the numbers, it certainly makes all of these little decisions they're making make a lot more sense. Because 
Contrary to popular perception, The Amazing Spider-Man 2 did not bomb. I mean, listen, it could have made much more money, but it made $709 million worldwide. I mean, that's freaking more than Man of Steel. And Man of Steel, and the DC continued past that point. And look, it's even more than all of Marvel's Phase 1. All of them. Everything. Even Iron Man 2, which was a big hit leading into the Avengers, that one topped off at like 623 million bucks. So The Amazing Spider-Man did not bomb. They very well could have pushed on from there, but instead they saw an opportunity to make even more money by piggybacking themselves onto the MCU. I think that's the real subplot here. And I think it takes away a lot of the confusion around all these announcements, around the fact that they're still apparently working on Silver and Black, the fact that they're about to make a Morbius movie. Like all of a sudden now, when you look at it in that perspective, that all they really wanted to do was use some of that Marvel juju to bring eyeballs onto their Spider-Man projects. Now this move, this deal they made with Marvel Studios makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Because they didn't really approach this deal from a place of utter weakness. You know, the amazing Spider-Man making 709 million bucks shows you that like if they made a really amazing Spider-Man 3 or a killer looking Sinister 6, it probably would have done good business for them. But they saw the writing on the wall. They saw people love the shared universes. They want to see Spider-Man with the Avengers. So let's go ahead and give fans that so that they'll support all of our other harebrained schemes. <laughs> you know, that, that seems to be at the end of the day what's really gone on here with Sony and their Spider-Verse. Because if you pay any attention, they are, they are not uh, retreating. They are doubling down on their Spider-Man plans. And by the way, you know, it's, if we're going to venture into like getting super cynical about this, you know, a part of me wonders if they're trying to, to force Marvel's hand. A part of me wonders if, you know, remember a couple months ago, I brought up, like I, I, I kind of made a passionate plea for the folks at Marvel Studios and Disney to just open up the checkbook and just buy Spider-Man back outright to, to rescue us from all of these nonsense spinoffs that are only going to dilute things. They're only going to water down the Marvel brand because Kevin Feige can't oversee them. And it's going to be weird having a Tom Hardy Venom that is sort of connected to the you know, to, to Spider-Man. You know, there's rumors that Peter Parker is going to cameo and all that sort of stuff. But who also isn't part of the MCU. And now we're going to have a Jared Leto Morbius. But he's not really part of the same universe as what's going on in the rest of Marvel. You know, they, they might launch a Blade in the MCU. They might do all this other stuff. But now Morbius is completely on his own. Like... I want Marvel to rescue us from this. And a part of me wonders if Sony is basically announcing all of these things as a business. They're trying to back Marvel's back against the wall so that they go, all right, listen, we need to protect our Marvel branding. We need to protect our Spider-Man because he's a gold mine and we can make billions of dollars off of him for years and years to come. We cannot afford for you to potentially make crappy movies that that hurt Spider-Man's value. So here's a, you know, here's a billion bucks. Spider-Man's ours now. Stop trying to make Spider-Man movies.
You know, like a part of me wonders if if that's sort of like their end game. And listen, if it is, you know, good, good luck to them. This is some interesting bargaining tactics that they've got. And it's kind of like a win-win for them no matter what, if you think about it. Because whether, whether Disney tries to just buy Spider-Man back as a whole to stop all of this watering down from happening, or... Marvel leaves them alone and they're, they are allowed to mooch off of the MCU success to build up movies like Mar you know, uh, Venom and Morbius and Silver and Black. Sony wins no matter what. So they've kind of positioned themselves in like a genius spot if you really think about it. They, they, they really can't lose unless the movies are terrible, of course. You know, if Venom is a total bomb, if, you know, if, if, if uh, Morbius ends up being a disaster, then of course, then they've shot themselves in the foot. But as of right now, they've positioned themselves gorgeously to either get a sick offer from Disney or to make movies that are going to mooch off of the MCU success without having to deal with Kevin Feige breathing down their necks about how the movie should be. So they win no matter how you slice it as long as the movies are reasonably good. And something else to consider too is, you know, based on based on some of this like insider stuff that I've learned, like, you know, there is this weird sort of roadmap that this weird blueprint that they've created to sort of have these Spider-Verse movies, you know, interconnected with the MCU. So allow me to explain. A little over a year ago, uh, I had access to the script for Silver and Black. Uh, I didn't read it, by the way, but but yeah, yeah that's, just, that's just not really my world. I don't really, uh, it's, that's not my thing that I do, but... Uh, the person who you know brought it to my attention, the person I spoke to who had you know, possession of it, I asked them just to kind of give me any sort of interesting cliffs notes, anything interesting about the script that maybe I could make a story out of or you know, anything I should know about. And I think I did help write uh, with Kelvin Chavez like a scoop for the splash report about this. But just to reiterate, um, there was a part in the script for Silver in Black that included... Uh, Scorpion, you know, the, the, the very same uh, Mac Gargan that we met in Spider-Man Homecoming, the one played by Michael Mando of Better Call Saul, uh, his Mac Gargan is supposed to factor into Silver and Black. And part of the script was going to reference things that happened. Because remember, he was in there as sort of an Easter egg. For those of you who've seen Spider-Man Homecoming but might have missed it. But, you know, Scorpion's in the movie. He had Gargan's in there. He's got the Scorpion tattoo on his neck. And he's played by a fairly reputable actor. You know, Mando is no slouch. He's on one of the best shows on TV. And, you know, weren't you a little confused as to why they had a character actor essentially playing an extra in Spider-Man Homecoming? So Gargan was going to get a follow-up, and that may still very well be the plan. But what, I'm bringing this up because there seems to be this internal effort to actually have these Spider-Verse movies work alongside what Marvel is doing with Tom Holland's Spider-Man. And that's why there was the rumor from Collider about Peter Parker making a cameo. And who knows? Maybe that's, maybe that's what the current deal constitutes, that Tom Holland's Peter Parker can show up in these movies, but not as Spider-Man. And that's why they're introducing, you know, Miles Morales so that that can be the Spider-Man that they see. But Peter's sort of like, I don't know. I don't know how this is all going to work, honestly, because even as I said that, 
I know that they have a grown-up Peter Parker voicing, you know, uh, Jake Johnson in the Spider-Verse, but that seems to be set in the future because he's already a grown-up. Honestly, it's all very sort of hazy, but what I do know is... There seem, you know, there's effort. There, there is a, a, a thought behind the scenes at Sony that these movies can coexist with the Tom Holland Spider-Man mythos and that it's not as disconnected as it sounds. So I guess that's going to be the part that's really interesting to follow if Sony is able to continue to develop and make these movies. That's the part that's going to be interesting to see exactly what the connectivity is between Tom Holland, Spider-Man, and these Spider-Verse movies. Because I'm telling you right now, it's not necessarily as cut and dry and as separated as everyone thinks it is. Sony very much wants to sort of attach these things at the hip. They're really trying to mooch on the Marvel train. So um, let's see how it plays out. Let's see how it plays out for now. All we know is that at San Diego Comic-Con, they're going to come out with guns blazing with Spider-Man and the Into the Spider-Verse and, you know, try to get people hyped for Venom. And who knows, you know, now they got this Morbius thing and, you know, it's they're coming out guns blazing. So let's see how this plays out. Let's see if, if Disney doesn't try to run some sort of interference to stop some of this madness. Because if, you, if we kind of flip things, you know, if Sony is win-win, Disney is kind of like they're in a win-lose scenario. They're winning because they have Spider-Man back in the fold. And they get to use Spider-Man in the Avengers movies. And they made him an official Avenger in Infinity War. And, you know, so they've got Spider-Man back. But they're losing in that they don't have full control over what happens with him and his cast of characters. You know, so Disney's got to figure something out here. I, 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 I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think it's in everyone's best interest for them to just bust out the checkbook and put an end to this. Maybe just have Venom and Into the Spider-Verse be the end of Sony's run developing Spider-Man titles. You know, I think that's their best case scenario. If you agree, let me know. If you disagree, also let me know. You know, I, I'm always, I, I always love to discuss these things with you. So, you know, make a case for why that deal shouldn't happen, and I'll be glad to hear you out. Um, but all right, so now we're going to change up uh, base a little bit, because lordy, 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 we've got some positive Batman movement to discuss this week, which I'm excited about. You know, so, so many times when I get to speak about the Matt Reeves Batman movie, you know, it, it's about things that are uncertain and, and rumors and bochinche and gossip and, and, and reasons for concern or to feel tentative one way or the other. Uh, here, though, there, there's, there's some positive movement. So, you know, a couple weeks ago, or I think it was a week ago, Mark Hughes mentioned something about how Warner Brothers would very much, you know, love to start shooting the Batman in, uh, I think he said like April of 2019, which, you know, I, I don't know where he came up with that or what he heard, but that's what he's heard. Okay, so that's one thing. Then there's also the fact that Bill Jett Ramey from Batman on Film has heard that they've begun um, hiring for the film. And it sounds to me like he's referring to like cast and crew type stuff, production level stuff, which I assume, you know, what, you know, I guess casting stuff will come next, but right now they're getting the team together who's going to help actually shoot the movie. 
Then I went, you know, when I when I read Jet's uh, report and I spoke to him, I decided to do some of my own digging. So I reached out to my friend Christopher Mark from uh, Omega Underground because Omega Underground, you know, they specialize in production logistics. That's that is their strength. They know who's you know who's going to be the the art director, who's going to be the cinematographer. Like you know, they know all the stuff about crew and about like when a film is going to start filming and all that sort of stuff. So I asked him, I'm like, listen, you know, Batman on film says they've begun hiring for the Batman. What can you tell me about it? Can you do some digging? So he went and did some digging and instantly came back to me. And then he tweeted it out for the world to see as well that yes, indeed, they've started adding staff to the art department for the Batman and that there is some movement there. So look, you know, it, it's kind of like funny to comment on it because even I don't know if you if you read my written version of what I'm about to say yesterday, you know, it, it's hard to come out with like one huge great thing to cheer about because it is all sort of vague, right? Okay, so they're hiring people. That's great. But what does that mean? Tell me when it starts filming. Tell me how complete the script is. Tell me when we're going to get an official decision as to who's playing him or what universe it's set in, all this sort of stuff. You know, there's all these other questions. So it's hard to get fully excited. But what we can get excited about is the mere fact that the machine seems to be getting warmed up. They're getting the team together and it looks like we finally have some forward progress. And that's a good, you know, that, that's good to hear. Because if you go back to what was being said around Memorial Day weekend, according to John Campia, you know, he had only completed like 20 or 25 pages of the script. And it seemed like, wow, this is going to take forever. But if they're already hiring people, then that's a good sign. You know, and what I'm going to do now on my own is independently try to get some confirmation on other details, like when we're going to find out about casting, like are they going to say anything about any of this at San Diego Comic-Con? Like I'm going to do my best to try to find out, you know, whatever kind of inside information I can uh, so that I could share it with you here. But for now, just take heart in the fact that it looks like the Batman is moving into its next phase of production. It's no longer just a thing where they're tinkering with a script and we'll see when this comes together enough to start filming it. And now they're actually getting down to the nuts and bolts of producing this movie, finally. So, you know, that's that, That's good news. Let's enjoy that. Let's savor that. Um, and look, you know, while, it's funny, while we're talking about like me trying to do some insider digging and all that sort of stuff, it's funny, this stuff with the DCU, the DC Universe that came out this week, I actually used this to vet a source. It's really, it's kind of funny. But uh, they, they are, there's someone who I've spoken to many a time who's made certain claims about where they work and who they work for and how they have access to certain privileged information. And, you know, you got to be careful because people like to prank and people like to, you know, I I've seen Umberto get taken for, uh, you know, uh, Umberto Gonzalez and Mayimbe. I've seen him get taken for a ride sometimes where someone will send him a script and then he'll report about script details. And then you find out the whole script was bogus and someone was just trying to fool him. So, you know, you can never be too careful. So this person has always claimed whatever, whatever. I don't want to reveal too much about them. And... The, the short version is, I knew that if that's true, if they work where they say they work, 
then they know what the DC Universe announcement was going to be. Because remember, they announced on Wednesday that there would be a big announcement on Thursday. So late Wednesday night, I reached out to them and I said, I tell you what, if you tell me what that announcement's going to be, then I'll know you're legit. And I won't tell anyone about it tonight. Scout's honor, I promise. This is mainly for my own peace of mind to know that you're who you say you are. And they told me what the announcement was going to be pretty much verbatim. <laughs> they told me about that sizzle reel commercial that was going to show all the different things. They, they told me that it was going to announce the date for the beta and when we could start, you know, signing up for things and all, all that other stuff. The only thing that they mentioned that didn't end up making it into the announcement was the price point. And they wouldn't say why, but it looks like ultimately DC's planning on unveiling the price at a different point. But they hit the nail on the head on the other stuff. And I, you know, it was, it's just kind of a cool little inside baseball thing I wanted to share with you. How I use this uh, DC Universe announcement to vet a source. Because uh, it's kind of fun. It is kind of fun. And now it, it's always nice knowing you've got someone else you can look towards for, for some intel. So now I've got, some, I've got another avenue to explore. So it's exciting. Kind of, uh, I, sometimes I feel like, what's his name? Um, Varys? Is it Varys? from Game of Thrones with his little birds. Uh, so yeah, it's nice having some other little birds to uh, give me some information. So now let's talk a little bit about the DC Universe. You know, they had a big day yesterday, new images of Robin. I hear they have other images like that of several other characters from Titans that they've been working on for a while. You know, they, they, they kind of want to do these like official like character reveals. And you know, if yesterday was any indication, people are going to love what they are seeing because Robin looks great and people are excited for, for that costume now and how the character looks. It looks way better than that initial shot they released a few months ago. Uh, way more textured look, way more dramatic. It looks way more in fitting with like you know, the, the, the cinematic canon as we know it so far. And um, either way, so you know, they've got more announcements about that coming along. But aside from that, you know, we found out the, the, the full breadth of what they're going to offer. You know, it's going to have movies, classic and new, even though it doesn't show the new, but you, you got to imagine it's going to definitely have the new stuff as well. But for right now, they're focusing on the archive angle. So it's going to have pretty much all of DC's movies, animated and live action. It's going to have a whole slew of animated series, you know, whatever they were able to get the rights for. When I, and I assume that as the rights become available from certain networks that they made old deals with, that you know, everything is going to ultimately end up on the DC Universe service. And the big one that, you know, that, that, that some people knew and it had been rumored and whatever is the comic book component. That for this, for that, you know, for your subscription, you'll also be able to have access to this huge archive of DC Comics. So it's all very exciting stuff, and um, it's funny, by the way, because this catches me at a particularly unique time in my life as a, as a fanboy, because you know I've never really been a huge comic book person. You know, I've read a few books here and there, and there were brief moments in my life or I collected for a year or two, you know, Superman and Spider-Man and whatnot. But overall, I've never really been a comic book person, but in these last couple of months, ever since, uh, oddly enough, ever since Avengers Infinity War came out, I have found myself reading old Silver Surfer books and other things that have to do with the Infinity War and the Infinity Gauntlet. And in doing so, it's like 
it's it's awakened this whole interest in the comic book genre, uh, in the actual medium of comic books. Which, by the way, I I, I kind of hope happens more. I discussed this on the Revengers podcast uh, like two months ago with Vanessa and Brett. But, you know, I, I kind of would love to see this sort of thing happen more where people are so taken with these amazing characters and interesting mythologies that they actually go, I want to go and read the source material now, you know? So it's interesting for me because if you asked me even three months ago whether I gave a crap about the DC Universe offering comic books, I'd be like, yeah, I don't care. You know, that, that'll, that'll be great for the people who read comics, but that's a functionality that will be completely lost on me. Now, though, I happen to be in a place where that sounds incredibly appealing, and that, that might be the, 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 the decision maker for me. To know that now I can pull up all the old DC comics onto my tablet and just read at this time when I'm once again rediscovering how awesome comic books can be, now yeah, it's a whole other ball of wax. And I really think that this thing's going to be something pretty, you know, gosh darn special. Um, you know, of course, you know, a lot of it's going to come down to the price point. No, I don't know what the price is going to be. Sorry, Brent. Uh, you know, I, I was given a strict uh, no spoilers about the price point. They, they did not want to reveal that when I spoke to uh, my source over there. But what they did say was that, you know, that there's going to be different price points uh, depending on the, uh, the market you're in. I don't know about price points in terms of the packaging for the actual service, but in terms of like, you know, there's going to be one price announced for the U.S. and that's going to be the first one that's announced. And then there's going to be a price point for the international markets as well. That's all I really know about price. And while we're talking about international stuff, like, look, there's a lot of concern, like, oh, this is only going to be in the United States. This isn't fair. What if I live outside of the United States? What do I do? This, this, and that. But listen, the, 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 the thing that's happening that's only for the United States is that beta. From everything I'm hearing, the, the, it's all about the beta that's launching in August. That's what's happening only in the United States. When the actual service itself comes out, it's either going to be simultaneously international or soon thereafter uh, in, you know, available internationally. So for those of you who don't live in the United States, don't worry. You're going to get yourself your DC Universe. They're not crazy. It's just the beta in August that's going to be here stateside. So don't stress about that. You know, of course, if, the, if you want it to be part of the beta, then that's a whole other thing. But for now, you know, there's no way that the DC Universe is only going to be available in the United States. Don't let anyone convince you otherwise. This is going to be an international service. Um, and also in terms of the service, in terms of things that they're going to be providing, you know, uh, they mentioned in there about the breaking news component that they're going to be, you know, it's going to be a place to go to for breaking news on all things DC. And the Hollywood Reporter took that a step further. You know, Boris Kitt and the Hollywood Reporter have a very, very cozy relationship with DC Entertainment. And as I chronicled on RevengeOfTheFans.com yesterday... Uh, you know, they indirectly confirmed an old scoop of mine from January of this year, where I mentioned that, you know, similar to what they've been talking about since September, since that interview with uh, Vulture, you know, they want to sort of take hold, they want to take control of the narrative. 
because there's always so much, you know, uncertainty when it comes to DC. All these movies are announced as being in development and is so-and-so going to drop out or is so-and-so doing the movie and this, this, and that. And one of the ways in which they want to sort of firmly take control so that there's fewer rumors and fewer leaks and few and less uncertainty about what they're working on is they wanted to create like a news portal, like a news show that would help you know, kind of be like DC All Access and stuff like that. I think there's also a, a direct Star Wars show. You know, they, they want to have their own place where they can be the ones who break official news to you so that you can get all of your updates straight from the horse's mouth. And the Hollywood Reporter basically said that. You know, they said there's going to be a place where all of the, that that's going to be where they update all of the current and upcoming DC projects that are coming. And I'm told it's going to include people who were involved with DC All Access, as well as some surprises. So, you know, I'm very excited to see how that unfolds. And it's it's always nice to see a trusted, uh, you know, industry news outlet like The Hollywood Reporter basically confirm and back up what I told you guys a whole bunch of months ago. So that's coming. And that was our first real indication of it. And I'm very excited to see if that helps with DC and their messaging problem. Because as, as Jeff Johns mentioned back in September, you know, th there's always sort of like this fork in the road. Whenever a new big DC rumor hits, they always try to internally decide, do we address this publicly or do we just let it go? And up until now, all they do is let it go. They just turn the other cheek. Every site and their mother puts out a DC rumor and you never really hear DC come out and say this is true or this isn't true or this is being reported incorrectly. You know, they, they don't really get involved with this stuff. But this show will sort of help, you know, give them a voice in this conversation because the subtext is going to be that if they haven't announced it there, then it's not ready for print. If they're not offering you this update directly, then take everything else you're hearing with a grain of salt because DC hasn't announced it yet on the DC Universe. So here's hoping that this helps them turn the tide and it helps with some of the negative clickbaity headlines you tend to find about DC as they look to take hold of the narrative with a news portal on the DC Universe. And now I want to wrap things up with a uh, with just kind of a, a bit of a look at some comments made by Kevin Feige of Marvel Studios about DC and sort of, you know, how he thinks that they could turn things around and yada, yada, yada. Um, because A, I think that there is some, some potent advice here. Uh, B, I wish he himself would take it. And C, I think other people are taking it way too literally. And uh, the actual, what he's suggesting has actually already happened right under your nose. And you would see that if you weren't being so literal minded. But all right, so let's get into the comment itself. Uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a conversation with Screen Rant, uh, he was asked what kind of advice he would offer DC to help them with their films. And he said... I always hesitate to come off as the person who is bestowing advice on people. It's not really what I do. What I do know is they're great characters. They're great characters. They're good comics. They've got great history. I'm not shy about saying Richard Donner's Superman 1, uh, I still think, is the paradigm by which we all should, we all still should follow. It's all there. So, a few things about that. 
because we, you know, we currently live in a society that frowns upon Superman the movie. Or at least I, I shouldn't say everyone does. There are some people who still look at it as a classic, as for what it is, or you know, its importance to the genre. But there's also the, the, this 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 tendency to look back on that as this big sort of campy, hokey over-the-top cartoonish mess that would never work in today's society and yada, yada, yada. Listen, the 1960s Batman and Robin TV series starring Adam West, that was campy. That, like, made fun of itself. That made fun of the ludicrousness of these people dressed up in these outlandish characters, and the whole thing was done in a way where it sort of mocked itself in a loving way, of course. It mocked itself lovingly. It was not a cynical you know, product at all, but you know, that was campy. Even, like, the Holly Berry Catwoman movie, that was campy. It was sort of, like, cheeky, and, and it just it didn't take itself particularly seriously, and that's why, ultimately, it was just, it, it fizzled out, and it didn't even matter in the climate in which it came in. Superman the movie is not campy. It has some humor. There are moments that are a little bit cheeky. There's moments that are a little bit, you know, funny and whatever, but overall, at the heart of that is its verisimilitude which was Richard Donner's overriding sort of, you know, that was his big mantra while making the movie. And verisimilitude, what it means is the appearance of being true or real. He wanted it to feel authentic. He wanted it to have real genuine human emotions. He wanted to give you the sense of how you would feel if you saw a man could fly and who could come in and save the day. It wanted to appeal to that childlike wonder in you. And it also had the audacity to take comic books seriously. Yes, I know it's a it's heresy to say that it took things seriously because it's quote unquote corny and goofy. But you know what? Go back and look at the Krypton sequence. Listen to John Williams' score, and then look at the Smallville sequence. And again, listen to Williams' score and the cinematography of that. Look at the amazing sort of three act structure and how sort of seriously and grandiose he made the Superman mythology for an entire generation of people. That's why to this day, that movie is a touchstone. And it's a touchstone for everyone. I mean, even Man of Steel, and it's funny because, you know, it's everyone always thinks Snyder is the antithesis of Donner. But in many ways, Man of Steel really did borrow a lot from Superman the movie. And that's something that people don't, they're in denial about. If you don't see it, that means you're either in denial or you haven't seen Superman the movie in a very long time, and therefore you should probably reserve any sort of judgment on this discussion. Because if you pay attention, the structure is almost identical. You have the first act in the very mystical land of Krypton, and we learn the sort of inner workings of what's happening on Krypton and Jor-El's battle with the Council and his rivalry with Zod and all that sort of stuff. And in fact, some of the lines that Russell Crowe's Jor-El delivers to little baby Kal-El as they're preparing him for his voyage are pretty much paraphrases of what Tom, of what Tom Mankiewicz wrote for the 1978 movie. It really, it just is. Like, you know, if you close your eyes or if you just read it on paper, you can almost merge them all into the same long monologue because it's practically the same conversation that he and and uh, and Laura are, are having about their baby and what's going to happen to little Kal-El when he comes to Earth and what his sort of destiny is and all that sort of stuff. 
Then you have the second act, which is primarily about his upbringing and Smallville and all the little building blocks that help make him who he is and what his dynamic is with Jonathan and Martha Kent and the, the, the values that he learned from them and the ways in which they cautioned him about what the world you know, might think of him when he actually comes out and, and reveals himself to the world to be who he could be. I mean, there's a lot of parallels there. A lot. And then the third act, you know, involves, you know, the, 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 it's, it's the big showdown. It's the big throwdown. You have Zod in there. And granted, Superman the movie didn't have that. But Superman the movie was the thing that made Zod a household villain in the Superman mythos. Zod was not an A-list villain until the Richard Donner movie. Because up until, and I've spoken to people older than me. I've spoken to folks who've been following. Lawrence, if you're listening, I'm not trying to age you or anything, Mr. Kaufman. Uh, but, you know, if, if I've spoken to some OG Superman fans who grew up with him in the 60s and 70s, and they've all confirmed for me that up until the Richard Donner movie, Zod was like a C or B list villain who was used very, you know, sparingly and was not really a front and center A list villain. And then Man of Steel once again turns to Zod, who was already one of the central figures in the beginning of the Reeve Donner Superman franchise. So listen, Man of Steel borrowed a lot from the Richard Donner thing. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not accusing them of ripping off anything. If anything, I'm I'm happy to see that, that, that the Donner film is still very much in the DNA of what Snyder was working on there and how it is the touchstone. And there are plenty of movies that claim that. Even Batman Begins. You know, Christopher Nolan has said that he was inspired by you know, Richard Donner's film and he used that as his touchstone for how to approach the Batman mythology. And here's the big shocker to those of you who are taking Feige's words way too literally. They've already done a Richard Donner Superman movie. And guess what? It was the most successful of all of these recent DCU movies. And I'm referring to Wonder Woman. Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman movie was very much following Richard Donner's archetype. If you don't see that, once again, you got to look at the, watch the two movies back to back and you'll see all the similarities. But basically you have, you know, the, the, that opening there on the mystical land, but instead of Krypton, it's Themyscira and you look and you learn the whole, the, 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 the Themyscira sequence in Wonder Woman is basically the Krypton and Smallville sequence of Superman, the movie all rolled into one where we learn about this mystical place where she's from. What, what the hero is all about, what that place and their parents are all about, and, and who she is intrinsically as a person. You have the parent who's warning them about what happens if you go and interfere with the world of man and whatever, and the destiny of the character and all this other stuff. And then, whenever, then when, when it switches over to London, it feels very much like when Superman the movie, when Clark goes to Smallville and suddenly he's in the hustle and bustle of the loud city metropolis and he almost gets hit by a taxi cab and he's, he seems like a fish out of water. They have that same sequence when Diana first shows up in smoky, foggy London and all the streets are crowded and it's all loud and hustle and bustle and she she's having she can't take it all in because it's so different than what she knows. And she's so intrinsically kind-natured and, and easygoing that it's a lot for her to take in all at once. She's never seen this. She's naive. She's innocent. 
and that's very much like the Clark that we meet. And then there's even that sequence, which you know, this is probably the most obvious nod, but that sequence where she's wearing the glasses and the trench coat, and she helps uh, Steve Trevor in the alleyway in a scene that is basically like shot for shot trying to remind you of when Clark saved Lois in the alleyway. So listen, folks. Wonder Woman, in many ways, even in terms of its verisimilitude, even in terms of the way it gave us a hero who was devoid of cynicism, who a hero who's just a person who's intrinsically, fundamentally, at their core, good and kind and wanting to help at all costs and not understanding why humanity is so cruel to one another. You know, there's so many thematic and tonal similarities between Donner, Superman, and Wonder Woman. And that goes to show you that like Feige, and in general, whenever people bring up uh, the Donner movie, no one is saying it has to be quite as lighthearted or include, you know, the bumbling Otis henchman or the, you know, the, the Clark as a big sort of goofy oaf. Like no one's saying that it has to be the Richard Donner movie. Cause of course that wouldn't work in today's society. Uh, that was perfect for when it came out in 1978, but using that film as a touchstone for, as the archetype with how you should approach these characters, with how grand the mythology should feel, for the human stakes, for having a hero who's there to save the day at all costs. Like that's the stuff that anyone who brings up the Donner movies nowadays is talking about. And you know what? Audiences love that. The proof is in the pudding. Just look at how people went bananas over Wonder Woman, which was basically a modern day Richard Donner Superman movie, but with Wonder Woman in it. All right. The proof is right there. You know, Wonder Woman was your focus group for whether or not a Donner type Superman movie would work in today's society. And no, it's not Superman Returns because people bring up Superman Returns, but that's kind of ludicrous. Listen, I, I get it. It's like an easy comparison to make since Brian Singer was trying to mooch off of what Donner had built in the first movie. But really, tonally speaking, Superman Returns was not really close to Superman the movie. It just wasn't. It, you know, it was a very somber movie. And it just, you know, aside from like borrowing certain things that were there to remind you of Superman the movie and, and even sort of ripping off the general plot line and the way things resolve themselves, tonally speaking and the way Singer approached it, you know, it was it was a downer of a movie and it didn't really have that great sense of wonder. And it had, I mean, listen, it had all kinds of issues. But when people use Superman Returns to say, oh, well, you see, this is what happens when you do Donner in the modern era. No, you're fucking wrong. You're missing it. You're not getting it. Wonder Woman is proof that the Donner thing, that the Donner approach to these movies still works and works masterfully. And more than that, I think the world is ready for more of that kind of movie. Because, you know, we have this great editorial up on the site written by Trey Jackson. You guys should totally check it out. It's called, you know, why, why the world needs Superman more than ever now. And you should totally check it out. But the, the, the central idea of, you know, just the, the current geopolitical pop culture, everything landscape is perfectly sort of set for a purely good hero to come and try to soothe things and try to bring people together of all ideologies and to have a pop culture 
heroic icon for people to rally behind, no matter what they're into, no matter what's going on in their lives. You know, and it's funny because like this sort of conversation is happening all over the place. There was even a story that came up earlier today I saw where uh, Vince Gilligan from from who created Breaking Bad and is currently involved with Better Call Saul, you know, he brought up that around the turn of the century in the early, you know, in, in the the mid zeros, uh, anti-heroes were the big thing. You know, because everyone was sort of reeling from 9-11 and there was all this cynicism in the world and there was all of this sort of, like, the, the time was right for the anti-hero, for the common everyday man, the Tony Soprano, the Walter White, to sort of step out and take matters into his own hands and the vigilante and that's why, you know, and Dexter, all these shows about anti-heroes were all the rage. And that's also where, the, you know, Christopher Nolan tapped into that sentiment with Batman Begins. Now, you know, he didn't make Batman an anti-hero, but he definitely played off of the fears and the uncertainty and the sort of darkness going on in our society society post 9-11. But now Vince Gilligan has pointed out that he thinks things have sort of flipped and that basically people are once again ready to embrace the age of heroes, just to sort of bring it all back to how this episode began with the Justice League discussion. People are looking for beacons of light, beacons of hope, and who better than Superman? That's why, like, in my heart of hearts, I would love it if Henry Cavill's next film as the character, which will you know, eventually get announced, uh, I would love it if it was sort of like the Dark Knight of Superman. And I don't mean Dark Knight in terms of tone, but in terms of the fact that it had importance. It actually, you know, aside from being good and entertaining, the script was so powerful and there was so much subtext and so many layers to it that you could almost look at it as a microcosm, as a snapshot of what's going on in the world today. Because that's one of the reasons why Dark Knight's such a great film. You know, if you really dig deep in there as, as to what Nolan is trying to convey with these characters, you know, there's some meat on that bone. There's some, there's some food for the soul in there. And that's why if they can make a Superman movie that has the same thing, that's very, very entertaining, but also has a lot of interesting, provocative things to say about the world at large, I think that, you know, I, I think it would be perfect. You know, and I feel like Wonder Woman already sort of did that by preaching a message of, you know, you can't fight hate with hate. You can only fight hate with love. So if Wonder Woman can, if, if the next Superman film can sort of build on that and be a mirror for our, our society and give us a character to rally behind so that we can be kinder to one another. And maybe we could save our own days and save the day, save the day for people around us who we care about or for our communities I think that'd be a beautiful thing. You know, is it, a, is it a little lofty of an ambition to have for a Superman movie? Sure, maybe. But if they could somehow make the next Superman film feel very much as important to its time and as relevant to its time as The Dark Knight did for Batman, I think that would be a huge sort of sweeping success for all involved. Especially since Kevin Feige himself it doesn't seem to take his own advice worth a damn. 
Because, you know, he loves to bring up Superman the movie and his admiration for Richard Donner. And there's these, there are these cool stories that go around that apparently whenever he hires a new person to, to direct a Marvel Studios movie, he gives them homework of you have to go and watch Superman the movie before we get started on this. Like, you know, that's like the assignment, apparently, at Marvel Studios. And look, I love that story. It's great. I love hearing that. It puts a big smile on my face. I love his reverence for the film, but the MCU movies as a whole, they don't really have that. You know, there's rarely this sense of anything nearly as, as grandiose and mythological and emotional and exciting as what I saw in the Richard Donner movie. You know, it's just, it's just not there. So much of it is so lightweight. And it's just jokes and it's, it's, it's cool imagery mixed with popcorn action sequences and disposable characters, but everyone is just charming enough to make you care just enough to continue on to the next movie. I know that sounds like I'm being a little harsh and there are obvious exceptions in there, but there's very rarely anything in these Marvel films that give me the feels, that give me the goosebumps, that get me all riled up and hot and bothered as a passionate fanboy to want to discuss these movies once the credits start to roll. They always feel very lightweight. And in that way, I really don't think Feige has learned the right lessons from the Richard Donner film. I don't think he really knows how to help get that tone into their movies. I mean, Black Panther sort of had some of it. And, uh, and Infinity War definitely, you know, it raised the stakes and it had some verisimilitude and it made everything a lot more relatable and there's interesting subtext in that script and all that other stuff. But by and large, through like 19 movies, most of the MCU stuff is just bubblegum. You know, it, I, I hate to say that. And, and John Crabtree, you know, Mr. Nice Revenger, you know, I know you're, you're very prone and very apt to go and find the deeper levels in the MCU movies. But I got to tell you, to me, a lot of the Marvel output is very, very lightweight and it doesn't really capture that Superman the movie feel. So when you consider the fact that Feige preaches it, but his films rarely display it, who better to actually give us, you know, to, to, to plant some beautiful trees and grow some amazing things from Donner's seeds than DC itself. And that's why this week's recommendation, as I'm about to bring this episode to a close, this, you know, this week's film recommendation is Richard Donner's Superman the movie. You know, especially if you haven't seen it in a great many years. I want you to go back and sit and watch this thing and try to do it with no bias in your heart, without any preconceived notions. Just watch the movie itself. I'm not telling you it's an instant classic. You know, it Just like anything else, it has its flaws and things that don't really work in today's society. But just look at the movie itself for what he tried to do and try to remember that prior to this, no one had ever taken a comic book property seriously before. And the initial sort of take on this movie was to do something that was like Batman and Robin. And they were, they were going to have Telly Savales as Kojak pop up and make a cameo in the movie. It was going to be very wink, wink, nudge, nudge, pure camp. And Richard Donner and Tom Mankiewicz had the, the, the courage to go, no, Superman is important. His mythology matters. What he symbolizes in this fucked up world we're living in right now is important and people need that. Because you got to remember in the mid to late 70s, things weren't going great. 
There was a lot of stuff. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a history lesson right now, but people forget about that. People have this, this idealized sense where, oh, it was a simpler time then. No, it wasn't. In the mid to late seventies, everything with the fallout of Vietnam and Watergate and crime levels in the big cities. I mean, there was a lot of horrendous stuff going on around the world. And Superman the movie came out as sort of the antidote to all that. And that's what I think the next Superman movie can and should do. And I think it's what the DC brand can and should do. So, all right, everyone, thanks for joining me for episode 65 of the Fanboy Podcast. If you get an opportunity, please leave me another five-star review or tell your friends about the show because... Things are evolving, things are shaping up, and uh, I've got a lot of plans and ambitions for where we're going to be going next. So everyone, until next week, life is chaos, be kind. Adios.